TBA 21 Academy Radio in collaboration with Mahazep Radio. Aridity Lines, Episode 3 on the new seasons and constructed infertility. You are listening to Aridity Lines, a podcast series invoking the local ecological knowledges that delicately tread the porous borders between land and water bodies around the Mediterranean Sea. And here is your host, Reem Shadid. In the third episode of Erditi Lines, my guests are cooking sections. A duo established in 2013 by artists Alon Schwab and Daniel Fernandez Pascual. Their practice examines the systems that organize the world through food as they write, and how food can be operated as a lens and tool to observe landscapes in transformation. Their site-responsive installations, performances, videos, and texts move along the overlapping boundaries between art, architecture, ecology, and geopolitics. Nominated for the 2021 Turner Prize, Cooking Section recently exhibited at Tate Britain, London, with a project revealing the gap between the rosy appearance and gray reality of farmed salmon, and how its consumption is a highly polluting activity that has severe impact on wild fish populations and marine life. As a result, 21 museums across the UK have agreed to remove farmed salmon from the menus of their cafes and restaurants, and instead introduce dishes made with ingredients that improve water and soil quality and cultivate marine habitats, such as seaweeds and bivalves. Their recent solo show, Climavore Seasons Made to Drift, at Salt Beoglu in Istanbul, questioned the present fertility of the Fertile Crescent by studying new cycles of constructed drought and aridity, the mutation of extreme weather patterns, the destruction of wetlands, and the erosion of fish populations across the Mediterranean areas of Eurasia. In the previous episode of this podcast, Ella Taniel discussed and examined the process of the Red Seaization of the Mediterranean as a marker of the correlation between the migrations of jellyfish, which thrive in underwater environments with low oxygen and depleted micronutrient levels, and the above water movements and networks of humans at risk. With cooking sections, we extend this conversation to other ongoing phenomena like the Mediterraneanization of the Black Sea or the Caspianization of large bodies of sweet water. We look at how to tread the liminal space between the traditional forms of conservation and adaptive methods guided by other beings and natural elements. For example, with the project The Lasting Pond, cooking sections dig into the shrinking wetlands on the periphery of Istanbul by proposing to reinstate one water pond to sustain the water buffalo and their herders' roots, while at the same time working with the local restaurants to reintegrate buffalo milk into their desserts. In this episode, we discuss what new seasons and habitats look like today and how we can engage with them. Cooking sections openness to be guided by local ecological knowledges, as well as by animals, plants, sea creatures, or fertility labs, can perhaps suggest a place from which to start reading climate change and its repercussions in their totality. Their research, combined with active projects like Climavore, forms an important reference point to the ways artistic practice can lead us toward change and more balanced ecosystems. Hello, Daniel and Alon. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Very well. 
Thank you for accepting this invitation. I'm I'm very excited um, about this conversation. It's our Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. One of your longest ongoing projects is Climavore, which you started in 2015. And you've worked on multiple iterations of it, which stores how to eat as humans change climates. Um, I, I mean, you wrote this. Um, so I was wondering if, if you can talk to us a little bit about Climavore, um, what's, what is it, and kind of maybe just quickly over the, the, the different iterations. Yes, absolutely. So Climavore is a project that we started back in 2015, as you were saying, as basically a platform and kind of movement to think how we change our diet and desires during the climate emergency. And Climavore develops site-responsive uh, site projects um, and to basically the new, what we call the new seasons of the climate emergency or the climate crisis that are emerging um, all around us. And that kind of takes shape or kind of originates, I think for us in many ways from the fact that today in any kind of mega city, whether kind of in the global North, but even in the global South, when you walk into the supermarket, you're confronted by all seasons, all year rounds. We're eating strawberries in the winter, we're eating oranges in the summer, and we eat some in any day of the year. And yet at the same time, we are kind of noticing that there are new weather phenomena that are emerging, like drought, like subsidence, like polluted ocean that are are what actually is shaping the way or influencing the way food is being produced today. And with Climavore, what we've been trying to do is to address these new seasons that are emerging and, and respond to the different ecological challenges that they bring with them. And especially to look at, look at them through the lens of food and how food also, or other ways of understanding food could also bring new horizons into the food production and consumption landscape. Is there also something very specific about food that you felt would it would be kind of beneficial or it might open up to things if if you if you investigate all these issues through through food? Yeah. Yes, in a way what what is interesting about food is that it touches anybody in the planet, right? We all need to kind of have some food at some point of the day and that also allows us to to on the one hand compare different forms of metabolism and metabolic disorders, but also questions around in biodiversity or climatic changes because of the production or, or the seasonalities of those uh, ingredients. Um, so it became for us quite a useful tool if you want to, to understand this change in landscapes. And I think food is also something that we've been kind of using as a tool for quite a few years now. And, and, and it's kind of something that, like, before even that we started Climavore, it's when, whether we were to looking into the history of kind of food production in the British Empire and how it kind of influenced um, nowadays infrastructure, it's kind of something that we have returned to over and over again in our practice or kind of used as a methodology for the way we work. We understand, most people understand, like when you think of the sea, you think of like a single body of water. And you, yes. and when, when 
and or you, when you think of land, you think of a very specific demarcation or you think of very specific characteristics. And actually, most people don't understand like this. This I mean, not they don't understand. We don't think about this kind of whole ecosystem and how interdependent all of these things are. So, for example, you have NGOs that work on very specific things as if it's the only problem. And with you, I feel like this is something that you've always insisted on. Even when the focus is something specific, you've always kind of insisted insisted on like again you know not seeing them in isolation not seeing the sea in isolation or not seeing any of the effects of this change yes definitely well that, that's a great answer already to your own question uh, <laughs> yes definitely i think we've from the beginning we we've been very excited about these interdependencies and how all these different species and ecosystems are tightly connected which sounds quite common sense in a way but also i think it's sometimes hard to to understand those complexities and yes of course there's people that are doing very specific work work on one very particular niche perhaps which is extremely important and crucial and and many times also we 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 need to collaborate with some of these groups on the other hand i think what we are more excited about is to to think of the whole system um be it the relationships between certain animal or plant species and humans or or just by looking at how these spaces are constantly in flux and and that's also what we've realized more and more that the situation we're in today is because of a very complex like series of of, of relationships right it's very hard to to trace cause and effect because there are many causes and many kind of consequences so the more i think we increase our our awareness of of all these multiple causes and all these multiple problems or, or consequences perhaps the more we can think of different possibilities on how to intervene in at least some of those um, connections so maybe like maybe going to a work that you just recently finished which is climate for seasons made to drift Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more more about that. Um, yeah, so Climb of Our Seasons Made to Drift it was developed as a response to an invitation by SALT, which is a um, basically a research institution and, and an art space and also a library and a very large archive in Istanbul that um, has been run um, by the artistic director Merich Onu for the past five years. And when she invited us basically to to develop an exhibition for the space in on in Beoglu, we started kind of to think about um, how this idea of these new seasons is manifesting um, in a place like Turkey. And I think there were kind of a few reasons why for us, that felt quite important. I think, first of all, on the one hand, we all know that kind of Anatolia is considered to be uh, the fertile crescent uh, that stretches kind of all the way to the Euphrates and Tigris and down kind of into um, the areas in, like almost to Egypt today. And and in those kind of, in that area, there's a very long kind of standing history that uh, perhaps we would like to call it a myth today, of kind of the cradle of civilization, the emergence of kind of civilization as we know it. Um, And that is kind of by the fact that the 
soil was so fertile that people kind of developed, started to develop uh, agriculture and domesticate grain. And that kind of evolved into sedentarism and kind of settlements and everything that gave us the culture um, that we supposedly uh, have uh, today. And from there, kind of, we really started to look at how different regions in, in in Turkey have been kind of giving a very, or providing various ingredients and how also kind of from children to the population, like various kind of population in Turkey was uh, learning in school how, you know, like one region in Turkey would provide olives and the other one would be grapes and the other one would be wheat, etc. Yet what is becoming clear today that with kind of the climate crisis, these like regions are in flux. So the the premise of the exhibition was on the one hand to understand how all these preconceived ideas of civilization, sedentarism, farming and climate have been also more and more contested by recent archaeological findings and how we need to perhaps rewrite that or those histories. Um, so the the whole project in at Salt was trying to, to tackle some of these new seasons that are blurring the boundaries of, of some of those preconceptions, uh, both geographically and uh, figuratively. And the, the exhibition space was structured into kind of five, let's say, new seasons from constructed drought to kind of the Mediterraneanization of the Black Sea to kind of, yeah, oceans or sea pollution due to fish farms. And each one tackled a different geography in Turkey, specific case studies that we've been working on for the past three, four years. Part of the research that you did for this exhibition was around the direct link between Turkish government policies and climate change. I was wondering if you can maybe talk to us about that. The exhibition also starts by looking at this geography congress in the, the big, big early years of the Republic in Turkey, when all these kind of scientists got together and decided on these seven regions and, and their corresponding climates and crops that they would be having. So that, in a way, was the sort of summary of, of the food landscape of the country. But more and more, we realized that those regions are becoming more and more obsolete because either the boundaries do not correspond to what they were or the crops that they are growing are no longer those that were happening like some 80, 90 years ago, or even the, the, the climates that these regions were supposed to have are no longer there. So if we are confronted with this whole kind of changing landscape, what, what do we do now? And, and also part of the, the research and conversations we had with different experts in, in Turkey is also how different policies have constructed some of these questions um, by either imposing certain crops in certain areas or by also um, introducing more and more agrochemicals to kind of enhance soil fertility to a point that is no longer uh, viable. Um, so to the point that many of these lands, after decades of synthetic fertilizer or pesticides or insecticides that were brought as the project of modernity, pretty much influenced by European uh, companies and or US companies, more and more are starting to collapse. Those same lands that were 
once part of the so-called Fertile Crescent. Um, so we started looking also at other ways of, or perhaps the, the, the ways in which some of these policies are contested between the reality of the terrain and the vision that many times countries like Turkey, but also other countries that depend on the, some of these food exports require. I mean, what, what is, yes, what's being done with that? What's the, what's, what is the, what are the conversations around that right now? For instance, what, one example would be the, one of the installations in the exhibition, which deals with uh, water buffaloes and the disappearance of the wetlands around the city of Istanbul, which once were the spots in the whole of Turkey with the largest number of water buffaloes roaming, uh, almost like, yeah, freely. So what happened was that these wetlands or, or wallows um, have been a very fertile ground for, for these semi-wild animals and also a key spot for migratory birds um, that in a way came about because of the abandonment of different peat mines that were happening outside Istanbul. So once those uh, mines were closed, the holes or ponds uh, filled, with, filled up with rainwater which became even a better space for some of these birds and, and buffaloes and their ecologies. Um, and also what has been happening is that all that area has been recently uh, rezoned as urban area in order for the construction of the new mega airport, uh, but also highways and uh, potentially the digging of the new canal. And that is meant to be dug at some point. Um, so all those pieces of infrastructure have completely transformed the landscape to the point that has been encroaching the buffaloes more and more and, and herders cannot take them uh, roaming in order to like, yeah, allow them to basically to thrive in the landscape. So that's a, a policy that has to do more with transforming the rural into the urban uh, for the sake of new infrastructure. But completely jeopardizing the human kind of ways of life around the, the buffaloes and buffalo herding. So in that case, what we've been doing was to try to think of ways in which the water buffalo ecology could be supported by talking to different buffalo herders, the association. Um, and the first step what we did for that was to, to dig a new wallow, a new pond for, for the buffaloes in one of these villages. With the mud, we, the clay, we worked with the ceramicists to, to produce 1,000 bowls that are kind of, a, kind of a, a version of the traditional bowls that you would use for sutlaj or kaimak, uh, which are products that were traditionally made with water buffalo milk from the kind of herds. Um, and then try to promote that in the city as, as a first step. And now we're working on the continuation of that project, which will be not only to uh, work with different spaces, the few spaces in the city that still serve water buffalo um, desserts from the outskirts of Istanbul, but also to, to promote what water buffalo ecologies in order to try to, to challenge that encroachment uh, by infrastructure and to keep the buffaloes and the human that care for them in place. This is amazing. So you actually built a pond for the buffaloes. Yes, it's a, a little, little one. <laughs> a little one still, and it's outside, and it's in in an area where kind of, but there are yeah many buffaloes 
um, that are dependent basically on these wallows for their livelihoods. Buffaloes really need the the wallows in order to kind of, it's a way for them, you know, going into the mud is a way for them to kind of protect themselves. The mud kind of dries and they break it off. They also remove all the parasites that kind of live in their fur. And therefore it's kind of something they kind of need in their vicinity. But because of this, the fact that kind of the grazing and herding areas are kind of getting encroached more and more, means um, that there are less and less wallows for them to use. Which I think is, is important to say that a single new wallow is not going to solve the whole situation. But I think what we try to do is through that digging of the wallow and the production of these um, pots is also to, to reconnect where those very traditional cultural products like sutlaj or kaimak that are deeply embedded in Turkish culture, they have an origin. So you cannot have those products without having the buffaloes Yes, really in the landscape, right? So it's again, going back to your question before, how all these things are interconnected. And many people or, or most people in Turkey, I think it's very hard to find anyone who would be against the kaimak or against the sutlach made with water buffalo milk. But then if, if that needs to be kept, also certain form of pastoralist livelihood has to be kept, right? So to, to reconnect those two, that again, sounds very common sense, but not that quite. I know that some people might disagree with me, but it's almost, I mean, in a way, helping animals reclaim the space. I don't know if that's a very kind, like a very direct way of seeing it, but this is kind of, this is what it made me think about. I wanted to ask also about the this phenomena of the Mediterranean of the Black Sea and to to understand more what you mean by that, because there's also been some processes, like for example, I was reading about the Red Seaization of the Mediterranean. Yes, correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. So when I was reading about your about your work and I read about the Mediterranean of the Black Sea, I was really interested in this. So can you talk to us a little bit more about this? Yeah. Yes. So yeah, yeah. And I think it, it, it all comes from the same it all comes yes. from the same place. And I think it's really yeah, it's it's great that you already open up kind of the connections in the, between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean, which is kind of comes to this moment and the phenomenon is called like the Lesepsian uh, drift where it's basically the digging of the Suez Canal um, opens up a channel between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean and for various reasons kind of the Mediterranean has more nutrients and in it and kind of more rich with marine life And there begins a migration, basically, of fish um, and different kind of marine um, species north into the Mediterranean, uh, which have been kind of shifting over the past, like, 100 years, the ecology of the Mediterranean Sea. And what we see now um, in, in the Black Sea is a similar process that basically because of but that now is induced kind of also by rising temperatures and the kind of the fact that there's so many access nutrients from fertilizer runoff that are kind of spilling into the Black Sea that basically more and more species are kind of migrating from the Mediterranean and through the Marmara up into the Black Sea and kind of populating it with species that weren't necessarily there beforehand. And, kind of are, are 
the installation that we did in at SALT around this issue kind of really tries to reflect about the future kind of of the sea and the sea that basically is unfamiliar to many of the species in, that depend on it in, in that region. So for that, what we did was to, to trace the, through different marine biology reports, um, the, the new species that are arriving to the Black Sea and also try to avoid the, the whole thing about native, non-native or alien, but just to embrace them as the new arrivals. Um, and we worked with two people that can speak the Kushtili, which is the, the language of the, of the birds, which is a, a, like a threatened language that uh, people communicate through by whistling in this village on the Black Sea, close to the Black Sea um, in Turkey. And it's called the language of the birds because they imitate those sounds, but it's also, it has its own kind of form of communication for people to, to speak from hilltop to hilltop. Uh, so it was, it's a, a dialogue, a whistled dialogue uh, talking about these new arrivals. Yeah, you know, I was, it's fun. thank you for that. It's funny because I was also, I, the last episode of Eredity Lines was with Ala Tanir and we were speaking about her research around like looking at like kind of jellyfish abundance in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, how like the abundance of jellyfish is an indication that the water is not healthy. And she was thinking also of the of, of humans at risk um, who are migrating through the Mediterranean. So it's really, for me, it's really fascinating to also hear that, to know more about the Mediterranean of the Black Sea. Yeah, because I was actually almost like curious, okay, but all these, you know, species and nutrients, like where do they go if the water is unhealthy so i can see that there again like this kind of like you started with the with the red sea to the mediterranean and now to the black sea also it doesn't end there okay <laughs> on top of all these kind of movements of or like opening of canals and that's why also canal istanbul the one that they want to dig would be even like accelerating even more the this process between the black sea and the mediterranean Um, but also you have the whole issue around uh, ballast water that uh, shipping uh, container ships take also from sides, from one side of the world to the other side. And we've been doing research for another project in the Great Lakes um, in the US and Canada. And, and there what they are talking about is the Caspianization of the Great Lakes, uh, which means like all these oil tankers going from Uh, the Caspian, well, not oil, oil tankers, but like through oil tankers and other uh, kind of vessels and containers, how some of these things are traveling, not necessarily directly from the Caspian, because you cannot. Mm. Like it's kind of the allegory almost of the movement of ballast water between different parts of the of the world. You mentioned you mentioned several times about, I mean, you talk about habit, habitats and seasons. Um, or new seasons and new habitats particularly. So can you maybe speak a little bit more about that? Yes, definitely. And I think this is exactly kind of when we're speaking about kind of new environmental or weather phenomena, these are exactly kind of examples for that. From like the draining of wetlands to the Mediterranean of the Black Sea through kind of seasons of in infertility. These are kind of all of these like new man-made seasons that are kind of emerging or kind of becoming more present and are 
going to become more and more influencing the way kind of food is being produced around the world. And I think, of course, that is happening, what is happening in parallel to that is the fact that more and more of our food production is kind of being separated away from the environment, right? So, and, and this is not a new phenomenon by any means, but I think more and more when we see kind of this kind of quests for like lab-grown meat, or we see kind of, of all of these questions of like aquaponics, of growing like vegetables without soil and so forth. I think a big part of it is like emerges out of this necessity or the thought that we have to kind of separate ourselves from nature because that is like the only way to ensure the surviviance of our species and of the planet. Mm. And in many ways, I think by highlighting the fact that perhaps we need to kind of rethink our relationship with nature and we need to look at it in a much more systemic way and not just find kind of solutions um, as band-aids to all of these like problems that are emerging and becoming more and more prevalent, like helps us to think about kind of these new lenses or new kind of structures through which we could reorient our food systems and kind of food infrastructure. You know, you have new seasons and new habitats. And within that, of course, there's a lot of uh, problems, but I feel like there's also something always that kind of grows out of it. So I'm curious, yeah. So yeah. I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that that you feel could, like they, that these new seasons or new habitats or this kind of also awareness, like what has grown out of it that we can somehow use? Well, I mean, I think we can use a lot of it because in a way it's, it's a, first of all, it's a way to kind of re- connect ourselves to the environment that we created and that we see ourselves like so separated from. And also it can show us or demonstrate the fact that like our diets and kind of the way we eat has to be very adaptive and responsive and, and we cannot kind of continue eating the same thing all year round, no matter yeah. like where we are. And I think and of course, the infrastructure today is completely not built around those ideas. And these kind of need to radically, like we need to do like a radical shift in order to re kind of orient ourselves. And, and just in our kind of, from our perspective, just thinking about kind of what some people coin this kind of radical seasonality, you know, this kind of eating like what is like in season and very particular moment perhaps we cannot afford it to ourselves anymore because like the seasons are just shifting. And if an area is like inflicted by drought for seven years, right? Like this thought of like eating kind of according to what grows in different, like in the specific uh, period of the year, not work anymore. I think it's fascinating because a lot of times when you enter the conversations about um, sustainability or about, uh, or even in a certain sense, climate change or any of these, or or trying to, the the, the direction is is normally trying to restore what was there before, or or to kind of a going back to what it was. But of course, the situation is is never that. The situation is, and and the idea I think that would normally is that things you know you solve it by going back to a specific place, 
Yeah. But, but, right. This is the general. I mean, this is yeah. a very big generalization. But I think what's fascinating with what you're saying is that you're talking about these new seasons and and new habitats, but you're also talking about new habits and you're talking about kind of yeah, like reassessing or de- redesignating what we have and and how to move forward from here. So I really, I mean, I really appreciate that because it's not within the, to say nostalgia is is to is very yeah, yeah, yeah. small, but no, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's okay. also what you were saying is like it's quite nice this idea of the connection between habitats, new habitats, and the new habits that we need to uh, start learning, right? And and how that's part of the adaptation, which for us goes more goes beyond uh, sustainability, right? Sustainability has been developed to do the least possible harm, uh, but we need to to take it more seriously and go a step further. And then it's not only to do less harm but to actually proactively engage with how to enhance some of those habitats that are disappearing or the ones that are appearing then how do we deal with them and and more than that and i think kind of what you are kind of referring to as nostalgia i think there's something very true to that and i think it's especially true kind of in the european context where you know we did the whole research a few years ago on the emergence of the kind of protected designation of origin labels in places like France and Italy um, at the beginning of the 20th century and how those kind of tried to create a certain sense of a region that is kind of producing like a very particular product, right? And this is like why today we have come to a point when we talk to Champagne, like most people think of Champagne as a product, as a drink, not as a region, in in France. Now, of course, there's a certain kind of sense that comes out of these indication and kind of the protection that was given to these products that they have been producing, you know, the exactly same, exact same cheese, exactly same wine for like hundreds of years, right? That it's part of the cultural heritage of a place. Yet the moment you start kind of looking a bit deeper into it, it's it's clear that these practices have been evolving over and over and have been industrialized and have been completely transformed. And even kind of the wine or the cheese that like one would eat today in like Roquefort or in Bourgogne are radically different than what they were like a few decades ago. Yet the industry tries to sell us an image of something that is like really static or kind of protected. And and that I think also creates a lot of sense of nostalgia and kind of attachment to a certain kind of like geography and a certain way of life that has been used, I think, essentially as a marketing tool. And therefore we have through that completely lost our capacity and capability to change the way or kind of to be, to have the tools to observe the changes that are happening in the landscape. And I think we hope through Climate for us to kind of bring back some of these sensibilities to people that I think are like really crucial in order to be able to kind of respond to a crisis, a crisis kind of in the weather, a crisis in the ecology and the crisis in the environment that we live within. Within your work, there are always proposals or openings for me you know for me I've always felt this or openings that allow us to imagine kind of yeah other ways or other habits of eating of living of you know etc most recently with the becoming climavore which is the your work is part of the Turner Prize exhibition currently on uh, you are taking your engagement further 
both in time and scale. So with a clear call to action in both cases, right? Like in, in Turkey and at the Turner Prize. And I'm, not, I'm, you know, I'm sorry if you've done this before and maybe I'm not aware of it, but for me, it's not about, um, because for me, like those calls, called to action almost, um, if I can call it that, it's not just about, you know, like you you were saying, it's not, it's not just about, you know, the single, the single restaurant serving salmon. I mean, it also kind of like reveals a certain network of complicity of, um, it exposes priorities of, of this kind of, of, of the places that we engage with. So for example, like museums or galleries, And I wanted to know why you pushed, what pushed you in that direction? Like what other types of, you know, like mapping or trajectories that does this, has this revealed to you throughout this process um, and all of these questions? Yes. And I think that that's like, um, yeah, it's a very important question in our practice. And I think it's something that we've been grappling with for quite a while, but I think that is now kind of becoming very much um, a, I would say like a, a central part of the way we work. And and I think a lot of it is kind of stems from the fact, you know, like I think we we think a lot about kind of like how do we like what does it mean to drive actual change in kind of the systems like that govern the way we live. And and I think one of the ways that has become quite clear for us is that Today, you know, and again, to use, go back to the analogy of the supermarket, right? When we walk into a supermarket today, it's like walking into like an ethical battleground. You like, are you going to buy like the organic food? Are you going to buy the fair trade food? Are you going to buy like the locally grown? Are you, you know, and, and, and for us, it's like, it becomes like really interesting, but why are we not going into places where kind of few food is such a basic kind of thing that everyone engages with. And when we kind of walk into like a supermarket, why are we not just like knowing that everything we purchase or put in our basket is good for us and good for the planet and the environment. And in that sense, I think we kind of put a lot of focus in our projects, not so much to kind of change individual opinion, but how to kind of change the industry, how to change the infrastructure itself. And we've been working in a lot with kind of different restaurants for the past five years, kind of initially on the Isle of Skye and then with Tate. Um, and then from there kind of now when the Turner Prize um, opened, basically we collaborated with 22 museums all over the UK that removed salmon off their menu and introduced a climb of our dish instead of that. Um, and that is kind of, yeah, I mean, it has become a real way for us to be start thinking of like, how do we alter kind of the food systems and how do we kind of start putting the responsibility on those who actually kind of decide what is on offer? How, what, yeah, what are the parameters or some of the challenges that you, you have faced with this? Yeah. Like a few, I think the one of perhaps one of the most palpable is the the problems of the supply chain uh, in terms of procurement of ingredients, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation because if there is no demand for certain products, of of course there is no supply, and the other way around, which all at the end of the day depends on on contracts and 
between farmers and intermediaries, distributors, and, and the hospitality business uh, in terms of who takes risks for some of these uh, less conventional products. And that requires a lot of research and innovation, but also passion from, from everyone to kind of actually invest in something that is, it goes beyond short-term short profitability uh, and much rather in the longer-term, um, yeah, ecological uh, benefits for the system. Uh, so with some of the restaurants, it was interesting also to, to be in the conversations around procurement and how actually, like for, for certain big scale operations, also you need to plan several years ahead in terms of contracts and, and then also how to start conversations with uh, local seaweed suppliers that could meet the demand for some of these um, uh, businesses. So th that was, I guess, the main challenge, which is also reflecting even more how also the uh, the whole food system is a bit broken, especially in the UK, and how it's all dependent on much more short-term um, yield and profit than uh, ecological benefits. Because the ones, the farmers that are doing the most interesting things, of course, are at a very small scale and many times disconnected from the other end of the of the chain. You think by changing these habits, going after kind of larger, let's say, decision makers, um, do you think like that, like, can that somehow like affect like our relationship to climate change or? Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. I think I, I, yeah. I mean, I want to hope so. Yeah. I, I don't know if we, we have enough power to do anything when, about when that, I, but I think it's again, taking baby steps to, to reconnect these dots. And I think because also we've done a lot of work with more, Kind of small scale or or, if, or or niche institutions, if you want, yeah. And and then I think also for us was interesting to use the agency and the mediatic power of the Turner Prize to to upscale those interventions, right? And and see what could happen if all of a sudden these big museums take a step forward, or, mm. or certain big caterers also start thinking about their own supply chain. And of course, there's a lot a lot more to do, but that was, I think, for us, the exciting part of the, of the Turner Prize, that most, a lot of it happened behind the scenes, yeah. um, and maybe the, the public don't see. But it's, it's quite fascinating how, like, if one of these caterers start, which we're working with one of the largest private owned, privately owned caterers in the UK yeah. that is running some of these museums, it's just if they make a little change, it's already Big. something. Yeah. Yeah, it's so amazing to hear this. And I think that it's incredibly important because we're constantly in this place, I think specifically in kind of like art and architecture. I, I think that there's always been a misunderstanding of how we can use our positions in order to affect change. And I, yeah. and I, and I think that this is such a brilliant way to do it. Yeah, like you understand, you understand exactly your position. You understand what something like the Turner Prize could give you. And you under you know like it's really fascinating. So I honestly like thank you for that. There, there is hope. There is hope. But thank you, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it and um, your time. Lovely. Thank you. It was really. lovely to talk to you. That was the third episode of Eredity Lines. Special thanks to our guests. Cooking section. Aridity Lines is commissioned by TBA21 Academy and co-produced with Radio Maazif.
It was conceived by Reem Shadid and Barbara Kasavekia as part of the current three Mediterraneans, thus waves come in pairs after Etel Adnan. Guest, cooking sections, hosted by Reem Shadid, edited by Barbara Kasavekia and Reem Shadid, introduction and credit voiceover Jinan Shaya, sound editor Mosh Air, produced by Maria Montero Sierra, Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.